welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Marshall Ryan Maresca in my old hometown of Austin, Texas, about his latest book, The Way of the Shield. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series. Before I welcome Marshall on the show, I'd like to share my review of The Way of the Shield. Dane has the highest respect for the order he's joined, the Tarians. The Tarian warriors adhere to a chivalrous code of honor. Though they live in a time period vaguely suggestive of post-Renaissance Europe during the Age of Discovery. When Dane, a candidate, returns to the Order's home in the city of Meridane, he finds events of the past year prevent him from advancing to the level of adept. Despite Dane's best efforts, the boy he was to rescue from a criminal's trap was severely injured when Dane failed to protect him. Now the boy's relatives are determined to block Dane's ascent in the Tyrian Order, which means that he will not be allowed to stay for good. Though Dane is saddened about his pending departure, he still takes the way of the shield and sword seriously. The shield, which appears in the title of the book, symbolizes protection, while the sword should only be drawn as a last resort. Dane believes that protecting lives doesn't mean taking other lives, though he is always willing to sacrifice himself if needed. His ideals will be challenged as he is drawn into events orchestrated by a conspiracy featuring 10 masked men and women, most of them highly placed in society. What appears at first to be a movement to give more power to the commoners is actually a secret conspiracy to replace the king and achieve new alliances in the parliament to further the aims of the traditionalist party, the political arm of the nobility. The plot is sent into motion through pawns that are unaware of the true goal. As Dane rushes forth, despite the Tyrian Grandmaster's injunction to save the day, he's helped by another candidate, Jurin, as well as the daughter of his lordly sponsor, the Lady Miriam, and an assortment of politically radicalized writers. In just a moment, we're going to have Marshall reading an excerpt from his book before he begins answering my questions. Hi, we're welcoming Marshall Ryan Maresca on the air today to discuss his new book, The Way of the Shield. Hello. Hi. And so, Marshall, you've promised us a reading from your book today. Yes, that's right. And so this is a passage from the beginning of the book. The dock workers were moving in. Dane got a count of them. Eight men, all stout of arm and back. One of the drunkest stock workers had picked up a rock from the ground. Dane put down his trunk. One moment. The dock worker had wound back his arm and hurled the rock at the men on the crate. Dane dashed across the distance, bringing up his shield. The rock clanged against it and dropped to the ground. Step away, gentlemen, Dane said. There's no need for this to escalate. Who are you to say what? The main dock worker asked. He came up, puffing up his shoulders in his approach. This was a man who was clearly used to using 
he used to intimidating people with his height and muscles. With most people, he'd probably succeed. With Dane, he had to crane his neck. Dane was at least a head taller. I'm the one who said, step away. Yeah, who's this fool, another dock worker said, who carries a running shield anymore? He's got a sword, too, the third said. This one looked a bit nervous. And he's in uniform. He ain't a constable or river patrol. He's a Tarian, you dunces, the old sailor shouted. Look, the lead dock worker said, still trying to stare Dane down. We're going to show these traitors we don't like their kind on our docks. They have a right, Dane said. You're going to stand up for their disloyal sewage? He glanced around Dane to look at the three men on the crate. You've got a thrashing coming, you do. I'm going to defend their right, Dane said, even if they're wrong. Wrong to want an unsullied bloodline on the throne, the center man on the crate snarled back. Dane sighed a bit. He feared that's what this was about. Some people never move on. Shut it, the lead dock worker said. Make us. Aren't helping, Dane muttered. Come on, boys, the lead dock worker shouted to his men. We still got the numbers here. No, Dane said firmly. You will leave these men unmolested. You're going to stop us? The rest of them found their courage and took a few steps forward. I'm a Tarian, Dane said, and I will stand between them and harm. Dane wasn't being completely honest with them, but he doubted any of them were familiar enough to read the pips on his uniform collar. To truly call himself a Tarian, he'd have to reach the rank of adept. He was just nearing the end of the second year of his candidacy. He might be promoted to adept in a few days, but... But that was definitely not why he had been recalled to Maridane. You'll get a thrashing, too, Dark Worker scoffed. We'll knock you back a whole century where you belong. They knew he had to dissuade the leader in a way that would dissuade the rest of them from fighting. He knew he could hold off all eight of them, but not without hurting them. And that would hardly be fitting for a Tarian, especially a second-year candidate hoping to make adept. As the doctor took a swing at Dane, Dane crouched down, bringing his shield to the man's chest. Rather than knocking him to the ground, Dane went up, raising his shield high with the man on top of it. The man flailed about uselessly while Dane held him nine feet off the ground. Stand down and disperse, Dane said firmly to the rest, before anyone gets hurt. The dock workers scattered. Dane smirked. Feats of strength usually let him avoid an actual fight. He looked up at the leader. I'm going to put you down, and you're going to walk away, yes? Yeah, yeah. Dane tilted his shield and let the man slide to the ground in a crumpled heap. Then he scrambled away. Thank you, the leader of the true line started. It's what I do for anyone, Dane said, no matter how distasteful I find their views. He went back over the trunk, which the old sailor was diligently guarding. So, you see what that's about, the old man said. I thought it had gone away, Dane said. Yeah, well, the new king is not who his father was. You hear? Doesn't inspire the same adulation. There is a proper line of succession, the man on the crate yelled. You should know, Tarion, of Romaine's gift. Will you shut your blight hole? The old man shot back. Dane had had enough of this encounter. It was well past time to make his way to the Tarion chapter house. Thanks, sir, Dane said, giving him another coin. You'll excuse me, but I think I see a friend over here for me. The man let him go, not arguing for getting two ticks for a little effort. And indeed, on the far side of the dock, standing up on the tall crate, there appeared to be a Tarian initiate searching the crowds. Grandmaster Oren had sent someone to escort him. Even if it was just an initiate, that could not be a good sign. 
This was not to be a joyous homecoming. So, yes, Dane does indeed not have a joyous homecoming, as it turns out, but he is ever hopeful. In fact, one of his things that he says that I'm taking a sentence from the novel is, hope is never futile, even if it's the barest of embers. So you write in a newly emerging tradition of hope punk. Could you contrast Grimdark and hope punk for us? Um, sure. Um, I, hope punk is a term that was coined by uh, an author named uh, Alexandra Rowland. Um, she has a book that came out just a, a, almost the same time as Way of the Shield came out called um, called A Conspiracy of Truths. Um, but the the whole idea of what she was saying is that you know if we need books where the principal driving force is rather than you know life is horrible life is just you know you know blood and violence and death and all that is that it's one where somebody needs to stand up as a beacon of hope and that somebody needs to be fighting for a brighter future even if it, and and not only fighting for it but but being an example of that um the the easiest compare and contrast the difference between Superman and Batman. You could say, well, they're both superheroes, but they do it in a very different, distinct way. And the distinction between those two characters is the same as the distinction between Grimdark and Hope Punk. Yes, well, Dane always tries to be fair, and he tries to be polite. And part of his fairness is in making sure that uh, justice is applied correctly. Your novel seems to speak out against vigilante justice. Several times over, Dane defends the life of the chief villain, Ferrick, stating that it is not the task of him and his friends to dispense justice on Ferrick. He also dissuades Jerrine from killing Ferrick. Can you comment on that? That's, I mean, that's his fundamental mindset is, is, to minimize violence at any at any kind of time, even you know when he has to stop people from you know from trying to hurt other people, he'll do it in a way that's as pacifistic and minimally violent as possible. Um, he recognizes, of course, that sometimes that's not always the case, and you know if but that you used the minimum amount of force needed to stop something. So, like. You know, if somebody's already been subdued, then that's what you need, and then that they should be, they should trust the justice system to do what it's supposed to do. Um, so yeah, he's definitely against the idea of vigilante justice, which will be an interesting thing to play with when in future things like this. Since this is a um, part of a larger series of books that are all intertwined set in Meridane and one of the main characters in one of the other series in Meridane is is a vigilante, then that's going to be a fun thing to play with when those two mm-hmm. <laughs> characters finally interact. Yes, it sounds like they're going to have opposing points of view. Another thing that Dane refers to a lot is the question of the bridge. Can you explain the question of the bridge for us and reflect on how 
the nature of the answer also indicates the character of the person who's answering the question of the bridge. Sure. So the question of the bridge is a in-world philosophical problem that's essentially the same as the trolley problem, um, as, which is a, a classic philosophical question where, you know, in our world, the trolley problem is there's a trolley that's going along and you're at the switch to, you know, to direct the trolley. And if you do nothing, it's going to, it's going to hit five people. And if you actively do something to switch it, then it's going to hit one person. And so the idea is somebody is going to, you know, be killed by the trolley one way or another, but do you make a choice and make an active thing to, to, save one person over five do you you know what's what's the more moral thing to do um and of course this is you know a philosophical problem that plenty of people have argued and and stewed over over you know the course of course of time here and in in the world you know the the world building aspects of it make it a slightly different thing which is why it's it's question of the bridge because it's people on a bridge and it's a mine cart that's out of control but but the the principle of it is essentially the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Dane looks at the different, you know, traditional answers of like, you know, and what that says about a character that they, you know, uh, the person that they, you know, would, do they do nothing and let five people die? Do they make a choice and still let one person die? And his essential answer is to reject the premise of the question that you don't just do either or you do everything you can to save everybody. That's, and that's what he believes is the correct answer. That's the core of, that's the core of who he is to reject the premise, reject the parameters and, and simply do everything you can. Well, he is ever hopeful. Hope is never futile. So I guess the hope that he can find a solution in which no one needs to die is realistic for him. Right. So, Dane loves the idea of being a Tarian knight, but does his understanding of how to be a Tarian differ from that of the Grandmaster? Mostly in the sense that he has a very idealized look at what it needs to be, what being a Tarian means in terms of, you know, and perhaps it's a overly nostalgic in, in terms of, you know, their history in, over the course of the country of, you know, that it is this shining ideal to stand for, whereas the Grandmaster has more, I don't want to say cynical, but definitely, you know, politically, mm-hmm. the, it has to deal with the political realities of it and in a way that Dane does not. And so the Grandmaster definitely is a little more hardened of what, needs to be done and what matters the most in terms of I'm trying to say this stuff without telling spoilers. Right, I know. I can sense that. The Grandmaster uh, has many agendas. You know, he's, he's far more of a pragmatist about what the Order is and what it needs to do in the world. Dane, Dane wants to stand up for that for the ideal and and the Grandmaster, while he respects that ideal and, and respects the degree to which Dane wants to stand for that, he also is, has to deal with, you know, Dane's not the only person here and Dane can't be just, you know, 
breaking orders and running off and doing whatever when there's supposed to be, a, you know, there there are hierarchies and, and political realities that he has to take into account as well. So there's also a complicated political scene going on with revolutionaries. The revolutionaries on the ground are commoners. They spend a lot of time creating the mayhem in Muradain through explosions and other means. They are in danger, yet they seem used to following orders, and they don't question the motives of the unseen chief. What is that due to? That's in part that, you know, they're really following orders that come from Lanik, who is their leader at the beginning of the book. And while he says, like, this is what the chief wants us to do, they, you know, they really believe in Lanik and that he's the one that they're following. Um, and he's, you know, they, he says, well, this is what the chief has ordered. They're like, okay, that's, you know, we'll, we trust you and we trust that you're, you know, leading us the right way. So that's why the fact that they're part of, I mean, again, this is a thing of hierarchies and that's a lot of how terrorist cells tend to work. I mean, I don't quite like to use the word terrorist for them because they are more, you know, they don't, certainly don't think of themselves that way, mm -hmm. even though that's an easy way to think of them. But that's how, or also uh, resistance cells work is that, you know, that the person knows who they're taking orders from and who they get, you know, who they're following, but they don't know the person up the chain because that way if they get captured, they can't, they can't tell anything that they don't know. Um, and so that's typical for that sort of organization. Um, but they, I mean, because they believe in what they're doing. They believe that the guy who's right in front of them who says, you know, this, these are our orders. And so they follow along. I guess for me, too, I was thinking that even though there are commoners who believe that they have more rights, they're used to taking orders. Uh, it would be a big step for them to actually, you know, begin to question things. Yeah. And which is exactly why they should, well, hopefully get some measure of freedom sometimes so they can begin to think more independently. That's, That's what true. I got out of it. Well, there's also the press in your book. We yeah. refer to the press as the fourth estate in terms of their ability to frame political issues. Recently, media has come under attack for creating fake news. The writers and former students that print the news sheets of Maridane also have a part to play in your novel. How would you characterize them? So the main characters who have their own who have their own newspaper, um, which they call the Veracity Press, um, they're they're definitely more they're definitely more on the fringe in terms of in terms of news printing. Um, there are other more established papers that are you know have a large circulation and are more centrist in in the news that they they print or might be more you know specific in that they're you know that they don't necessarily hold a political view or such whereas the the, the main characters who print the veracity press Hemet and Marish and Lynn they they definitely have a strong political point of view that's 
not out of line with what the the revolutionaries are doing. They they on some level they kind of agree with them, but aren't as radical, aren't you know aren't violent, but they have similar similar views in that direction. Um, but for me, part of it it was important to show that this city has a has a thriving you know, newspaper community where there, and that there are several different newspapers over the, the entire city. Some of them, you know, large institutions, some of them small, just, you know, we've got a printing press in, you know, in the back barn and we're printing these pamphlets out and, and sharing them with whoever will take them, which is more the sort of operation that, that these guys are running. Um, but I, I felt it was an important aspect of world building for, for the city to, to show that aspect of the culture and how people get, you know, news and information and the potential, you know, biases or, or attempts at lack of bias that are shown in the people who, who put this out. Um, but in the case of these specific characters, I do make them be that they're, while they certainly have their political view, they are specifically, seeking to be as truthful as they can be within the frame of their of their own political mindset um and you know for them they they do you know they've got certain ideas that over the course of the book some of them get challenged and they they come through with a with with a a change point of view not necessarily that their political ideas are wrong but maybe what they're going about, how they're going about it is, is at least challenged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Veracity Press. Yes, indeed. So, uh, tensions in a book actually leading through newspaper articles as well. Tensions arise about the perception that someone is seeking glory or attention. The desire to seek fame led to unfortunate consequences for the master that Dane accompanied to a foreign city as it led to a criminal targeting them. As a consequence, Dane shuns the limelight, yet others are not so averse. Is it really such a bad thing to seek recognition for good deeds? No, of course it isn't. Um, but, you know, for one, Dane had a bad experience that can be drawn, that the connections can be drawn to you know, the attention that they got, but also in the case of this is, this is one of the big conflicts between Dane and the Grandmaster of the Order of is Dane seeking, you know, the difference between personal attention that, you know, of him specifically as a hero, or is he drawing, a, you know, good attention to the Order as a whole? And these are some of the things that, uh, that the Grand Master is worried about, and Dane is worried about it too, in that, you know, A, he already had this bad experience that can be traced back to getting lauded in the papers in the city he was in before, but, you know, that, that's, that's the delicate balance that one needs to walk when, when in public spotlight is, you know, the difference between using that as as a tool for, for better things or using that as a, as a way to, to puff your own ego. Um, mm -hmm. And 
Dane worries of which one he's he's even doing when he gets paid attention to in the paper, and the people, some of the people around him who don't necessarily know his pure motives, question if that's really you know what he's doing or if he's trying to do something better. Yeah, it seems like he he's kind of hard to miss. He's always in the center of everything, and he's a big guy. <laughs> so I believe you've written eight books since 2015. Is that correct? That's right. That's okay, correct. your debut novel came out then, The Thorn of Denton Hill. So what is the secret of your productivity? Whenever I talk to, to, to new writers about, like, or young or students about, you know, how write a certain way like i always tell them like my methods are what work for me and that doesn't necessarily mean that what i do will necessarily work for you or your own writing style but for me a big part of it is that i i do a lot of outlining i do a lot of like long-term planning so i know and i try and instead of like doing writing in like big bursts of like you know i'm gonna write you know a hundred thousand words in three weeks and then stop and, and mull on that for a while. I try and write at a more deliberate pace over the course of time and know like, okay, I have to have this done by the end of April. So I have to be writing this much each week and such and so forth. Um, and so I do strive to have a, a very meticulous plan of what I intend to do and when I need to do that. And, you know, that's been what's kept me on track with each of these books of, you know, the eight that have come out so far. And the ninth one of Parliament of Bodies will be coming out at the end of March. My goodness. Um, it's basically I'm executing this, you know, long-term plan that I have with all these four different Meridane series. So that's the key. I mean, the key is that I, I have a plan and I know where each of these books is going. And that helps a lot in terms of, keeping the writing on pace, but also I, you know, try to be very disciplined about maintaining that pace. Yes, I imagine, because you're writing full time and, uh, you know, there would be the temptation to just let the hours kind of float away. So I see you adhering perhaps to a, a, a somewhat scheduled existence, despite being your own I, boss. I do try. Uh, there's days where it's like, I didn't get, uh, how did it become 10 p.m. already? <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, that that is the, the, the goal most of the time, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. And Absolutely, we'll look- thank you for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to us today on a New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Marshall Ryan Maresca about his latest novel, The Way of the Shield. His debut novel, The Thorn of Denton Hill, was nominated for the Compton Crick Award. He grew up in upstate New York and studied film and video production at Penn State. Marshall now lives in Austin with his wife and son. His work appeared in the Norton Anthology of Hint Fiction, and Rick's Claws anthology, Ray Guns Over Texas. He has also had several short plays produced and has worked as a stage actor, a theatrical director, and an amateur chef. To sign up for his mailing list, visit him on his website, mrmoreska.com. 
And that's Mr. M-R- M-A-R-E-S-C-A dot com. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which begins with The Falcon Flies Alone. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, author. <laughs> 